the sermon teaching is on uh, today on Mark 1, chap- uh, verses 1 through 13. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well and pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. You respond, thanks be to God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. And the reason why we identify it as God's word is we believe the Bible is this, this story told over 1,500, 2,000 years, written by 40-some human authors, and yet this story intertwines. And it ends being one story that culminates in one person. It's a unique book, a book that we believe that God has inspired to be written authoritatively and accurately. And so the reason why we hear it during on our Sunday mornings and then try to walk through it to understand it is we truly believe that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So let's pray that God would bless us now. Lord, we're thankful that we can listen to these words preserved for us. I'm thankful, Lord, that you would have moved Mark to listen carefully to the testimony of Peter and the other apostles that Mark was able to spend time with and and understand the testimony about what Jesus said and did, the early ministry, the culmination at the cross and the resurrection, and then then when taking a pen to paper, the Spirit inspired these words for not just the first hearers, but for here is now for 2,000 years to hear and to understand and to respond. And we pray that we would listen in to this wonderful story, this magical book, because it's inspired by God and it changes lives and changes the world. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Uh, Kurt Cobain uh, took his life in 1994. If you're unfamiliar with Kurt Cobain, he was the front man for Nirvana, one of the first bands that was dubbed alternative music or grunge. And he, in my mind, when I hear the term lost soul, just immediately comes to mind. 
lost because at one level, he was phenomenally successful. I mean, able to understand a generation and, and, and able to connect sounds and lyrics to a generation. He had massive fame, massive, massive wealth, married a, another famous, attractive person. And so on one level, just successful. And yet on the other side, just an empty shell of a man who filled his life uh, primarily with drugs and eventually in his emptiness um, took a weapon to his own body. It's a lost soul. As I think about lost souls, I think about you know, many college freshmen. They come in out of high school, often very successful in high school, and they come in and they, they want to experience college at its best. They want to be prepared for the future, and yet they also want to experience everything that the world has to offer. And so a lot of times their freshman year, they give themselves to everything. Uh, and everything is everything. You know, they're, they're trying to do well in class, impress their professors, and then the weekends they're trying to experience relationships and excitements and, and partying. But what I find so interesting is the sophomores, right? This is what's so interesting. Freshman year for most people is just wild up and down. And there's this, um, you know, yeah, just, I, I, I don't know, everybody went to college. Freshman years are tough and yet wonderful all at the same time. What's so interesting is you come back as a sophomore and if there hasn't been, in, in my understanding, uh, some amazing experience with the living God and to walk with him, you almost feel more lost as a sophomore than you did as a freshman. Because on one level, you know that the partying and the one-night stands, it never really satisfied, and yet you don't know anything different. So maybe as a freshman, you were a gung-ho Republican fighting at their rallies, but that brought you sadness. So by the sophomore year, now you're at the Democratic rallies, because maybe I'm going to find my identity there. Or I'm going to, you know, that major wasn't doing it for me, so I'm going to switch this major. Or that guy didn't make me happy, so I'm not even going to that guy. And there's this, this, this journey of just being in the wilderness of college. And everything that they try, it just seems to bring emptiness and fear. And I resonate with that journey of just feeling lost in the wilderness. And everything you tried before didn't seem to work, and so you try something different, and you just fly back in this pendulum in life. And I don't think it ends at age 20. I think a lot of adults just experience this too. Maybe you don't you know, do the whiplash of one year to the next, but maybe you try five years this way, <laughs> and then five years that way. But the wilderness saga seems to continue. And the wilderness theme is one of the most prevalent ones in Scripture, uh, both literally and Figuratively, but you know, what, what is a wilderness? A wilderness is a time of judgment, of testing, of confusion. And uh, you know, in, my, in my home, there's only one person that has a good sense of direction, and it's not me. And so I've been literally lost before, and uh, I, I don't like admitting it. I don't like saying I'm, I, I don't have any idea where we are. And it's hard at that point to pull over. It's hard at that point to start over. It's hard at that point to turn around. And yet, when you're lost in the wilderness, your only hope is to stop and turn around. Though it's hard to admit it. I don't know if you caught it, but in the reading of today's scripture reading, the, re, the most repeated word is wilderness or desert. And it's in the desert or in the wilderness where there is hope. But it always requires that moment of admitting you're lost. And maybe the greatest 
miracle of all time is the willingness to start over. Let's walk through this text in three sections. The, second, the first section is just that there is this message of hope, and where does it arrive? It arrives in the wilderness. You see this in the verse, first eight verses. Mark starts his gospel by saying, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah and the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So he's beginning the good news about Jesus, and he ties it immediately with Old Testament scripture. And it says, I'm going to send this messenger in the Old Testament ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so, so scripture written in the past, now happening in the first century. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, they went out to him, to John. And confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. It says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt wrapped around his waist. And he, he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Three quick questions in these verses. What sort of message came? How does the message arrive? And why in the wilderness? First, what sort of message? I just don't want you to miss the idea that the main point of his message is a person. That's the summary at the end. What's the summary of his message? One more powerful than me is coming. If you go back to verse 2, he's, the messenger is to prepare the way for the Lord, a person. Prepare the way for the Lord. He's coming, a person. I would say it's very common in many religious systems, in many, uh, you know, uh, you know, preachers that you can find or spiritual teachers. They love to give you principles, uh, ideas, mystical practices. But the message that comes is about a person and a body and spoke, and real, was, you could touch. It was a, a spoken person who was a rational human person. And it says in verse 1, who was it? It was Jesus, person originally from Nazareth, but later became to be understood as the Messiah, the long-awaited and promised king, and not only that, the Son of God. Son of God's suggesting this intimate connection with God the Father. It's about a person. And it says this person at the end there at verse 8, he's the person that is going to baptize people into the Holy Spirit. That is, he will be able to immerse people into a relationship with the divine God like no one who has ever done before. And he alone can baptize someone that way. So all the other false teachers in the world, 
They might try to immerse you into some esoteric teaching or spiritual principles. What Jesus wants to do is immerse you into a relationship with God that has never happened before, that will transform you deeply, significantly, truly. How does the message arrive? And the message arrives through this man, John the Baptist. The good news begins in the wilderness with Jesus' predecessor or herald, a man named John, noted for doing a whole bunch of baptisms, so he gets the epithet, the Baptist. This is John. Now, when he arrives, it says here in Matthew 1, verses 2 and 3, that he is taking on the mantle of a few Old Testament prophecies about a coming messenger. And they, they actually, they, even though he says it's written in Isaiah the prophet, uh, only verse 3 is really from Isaiah. The, other, the earlier verse has, is mentioned uh, in two ways in two different places. I want to look at them. Uh, they'll be on the wall here projected, but I'll, I'll go find them too. One of them comes from Exodus 23, verse 20. And Exodus 23, verse 20 says this. See, this is God speaking to Moses. See, I am sending you an angel or a messenger ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. In this context, it was original. It was an, uh, an actual angel messenger who was guiding the people. And now, John the Baptist is proclaiming a message and guiding the people in much the same way, in much the same significance as the angel that guided people to God's promised land. John is leading people to God's promised one, God's promised Messiah. The other reference comes from Malachi, which is one of the last, this is the last books, excuse me, in the Old Testament, probably the last recorded message in the Old Testament before there was 300 years of prophetic silence. No prophet arose. No one said anything. But what was predicted by Malachi, one of the final prophets, was this. Malachi 3.1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, meaning God, a messenger is coming to prepare the way for God. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, people were waking up in Israel that this messenger had come, the one that they had been waiting for for hundreds of years. And then the last reference comes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. The reason why I wanted to look at these is just to remind you, the Bible is written by 40 different authors, and yet they're telling one story, and it's all interconnected. It's knit together by God alone. Isaiah 40, verse 3, another prophet, this one some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, writes this, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So how does the message arrive? Through an anointed and appointed prophet. 
That's who John is. And I don't want you to admit either that his ministry is a stunning success. All the people of Judea came out. All the people of Jerusalem. That doesn't mean literally all, 100% all, but we're talking about a massive response to the ministry of John the Baptist. So much so that later in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus is speaking about the ministry of John the Baptist, he said John came and he has restored all things. Jesus looked on John's ministry and says, this is as good as it's ever been under the old covenant. John has produced a revival of hearts seeking God, wanting him to show up. People are admitting they're falling short. They're receiving baptism. They're confessing their sins. They're longing for a better day. This anointed and appointed prophet is blowing people out of the water. Actually, he's blowing them into the water. But this is a successful ministry. This is partly why when we see Jesus begin his ministry, there are some early followers. They'd already been impacted by the ministry of John the Baptist and saying that one greater was coming. Eventually, he points at Jesus and says, there he is, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And some people start following Jesus. He's wonderful. And he is fulfilling a promise to be one like Elijah. Now, Elijah is the greatest Old Testament prophets recorded and you go back to him in the midst of a very depraved season in the world with false kings and queens and idolatry and people's hearts being wandering off and worshiping false gods elijah whose name means my god is yahweh the one true god he stands strong and he's faithful and he has a a a revival in the land. Turns out to be short-lived, but he does. He's successful to draw people's hearts at least for a brief while. And so one of the very last things recorded in the Old Testament is that one, like Elijah, will come. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. These are the last recorded words at the end of the Old Testament. God promises, see I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The reason why we know that uh, people saw Mark, uh, or that many people thought John was Elijah, was there's just these different questions. Are you Elijah? Are you the one? And, and then what's interesting, it even describes how uh, John the Baptist dressed, like he's dressing like Elijah dressed. You know, if I showed up here, you know, with big, like, pasted on, dark sideburns and real flashy, shiny clothes, some of you would know that I was dressing like Elvis. He was a... Hey, he was a fa- younger people. He was a famous singer, and he wrote songs that people from the dinosaur age listened to. He, he was very good, and all the brontosauruses came and they gathered around at concerts, and they thought he was quite a hound dog. Um, but, but what I'm saying is, when people saw Elijah, uh, John the Baptist, he he took on the garb of this famous prophet. He spoke with power like the promised prophet. And so when people come, they recognize they were before a real prophet. So he was an appointed prophet with an unprecedented success. 
But now this big question, why in the wilderness? Why was it prophesied that he would be in the wilderness? And why was he in the wilderness? The wilderness all throughout the Old Testament is the place where God starts over with his people. This is where we start over. This is where we find our identity. This is where we leave Egypt, the city, the pagan city, and we go into the wilderness to meet with our God and find out who we are and to enter into relationship. It's likely, this is interesting, John the Baptist is doing his ministry at about the exact place where the people of Israel crossed into the promised land under General Joshua. So where the people of God began their entrance into the land, John says, come out of the land to the wilderness, we're going to start over, and then we're going to go back. So his message is about repentance and starting over. His, his garb is the one calling people to prepare. His, everything he's doing is saying, we have got to start over here. And then he gives people a sign he says, and you need to then be baptized, right? Which is, it symbolizes all sorts of things, cleansing, rebirth. It's a symbol of going through the Jordan River, just like the people with General Joshua went through the Jordan River to begin their life in God's country. So everything he's doing says, this is one gigantic do-over, and you, this is the key thing, you will not be ready for the Messiah that is coming, this greater one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You will not be ready if you are not ready to start over. If you think you have any aspect of this world or your life figured out, you will not get Jesus. Years ago, uh, Dallas Willard said, do you know what God's address is? What would you put on the envelope? If you're trying to get God, and it's this. God's address is at the end of your rope. That's where God lives. And until we get to that, until we can say, I have nothing, I'm bankrupt. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirits, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And when you recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt, when you're lost in the wilderness, when you bring nothing to God but your sin, when you have nothing to offer but uh, a cry of SOS to God, if that's where you are, then you are in a very good place to meet the greater one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But if you won't go there, or more importantly, you won't admit that you're there, you're actually going to remain in the wilderness for a very long time and never get out. So I started by, by saying that I've seen many lost souls in their freshman, sophomore year in college. But what's amazing is many freshmen and sophomore years in college are much more quick to admit it than someone who's 40 or 50. Because by then, you're not chasing toddlers anymore and life seems to calm down a little bit and you're probably making more money than you've ever made and some of the just the natural bumps of life, you've made it through it, and you're like, huh, I just might make it to retirement. But many people, they need to come out into the wilderness in their 40s and 50s and do the same kind of confession and say, I'm lost, 
and I need to start over, and I need the great one to come and baptize me and immerse me in the life with God. And even if you've been a Christian for 20 years, there's still seasons where you just got to start over. I would say it's most Sundays. Which is why we take the Lord's Supper most Sundays. It's the weekly desperation reminder. I live by what Christ has done and that alone. Where do you need to start over? But remember, here's the, here's the good news. The message comes in the wilderness. God sent it there. But then we have this next section. The message arrives in the wilderness, but then something marvelous happens. The Son of God comes into the wilderness. Now we're moving to the good news. The Son of God, he comes out into the wilderness. Look at verse 9. Now at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. He goes out to the wilderness. He's baptized by John in that same Jordan River. Now, this is strange. This is Jesus. We just read in verse 1. He's the Messiah, and he's the Son of God. But he's going to the waters of repentance. He's going to the do-over, start-over wilderness. This is not what Messiahs and sons of God do. They don't need to start over. They're perfect! Why is he confessing his sin? Well, it turns out he's not. (laughs) And how do I know that? Because we have three signs from heaven that though he's identifying with those in the water, he is not like those in the water. It says in verse 10, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Three signs that though he's identifying with the people in the water, he is not like the people. First, heaven splits open. We're talking about an atmospheric sign. There's a little bit of scholarly debate, but I'm going to state my opinion. I think everyone saw what was going on here. Every other time there's atmospheric disturbances listed in Scripture, everybody sees them. I think we saw this. Isaiah 64, verse 1, tells us something about atmospheric disturbances of heaven rendering. Isaiah 64, 1 says this, Oh, that you, God, would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. So this rending of the heaven is a divine action symbolizing God coming down, or I think in this case, already there. Then it says, the Spirit descended like a dove. That doesn't mean, despite some of the wonderful paintings in history, it actually looked like a bird. I think it's the idea of somehow they saw some sort of glorious luminescence arriving in the presence of Jesus. And people were like, what? And then heaven spoke. Now, was it, was it, did they hear the exact words? Did they hear thunder? But something was heard. But what Jesus heard is, you are my son, the unique son of God, the beloved one, loved by God, in intimate communion with God. And God is pleased with him. This is not an unholy man needing to confess sin. 
This is a holy man without sin who pleases his God in every way. So the three signs, heaven splitting, the Holy Spirit falling, and the heavenly Father speaking. Jesus identifies us, but he is not like us. He is the promised son to come to save his people. This is God's anointed servant to save the people. Identifies with us, but is not like us. And this is why all throughout Scripture and all throughout Christianity, we don't make light of Jesus. Years ago, there was a movie, and they had this little figure, Jesus making this little okay sign. He was called Buddy Jesus. They made light of Jesus. They didn't respect that though he identifies with us, he is not like us. He is unique. This is why we know and why we teach our little ones. We don't take the Lord's name in vain. Jesus' name is precious. It's by the name of Jesus that every knee will bow. It's by the name of Jesus that all uh, must be saved. This is a precious name, a precious person. And the reason he's precious is because he came out to the wilderness to identify his people. But in this next step, we see the Son of God going into the wilderness to save his people. Verses 12 and 13 say this, at once, boom, first thing, the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, if you read the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, you get a much longer description of what Jesus faces in the wilderness and his desert temptations. Mark chooses not to include that, maybe because he knew someone else was taking notes on that subject. But what I do think Mark is doing here is he's giving a preview to what Jesus as Messiah is going to do. It's a snapshot of what Jesus is going to do. To do. And what it's teaching us is that Jesus must face our bitterest enemies in our place of judgment. Wilderness is a place of testing and judgment. So Jesus is going to go to the place of judgment. He's going to face the greatest enemy. The enemy is Satan and his lies. It's going to be fierce. I think that's what the wild animals symbolize. But the end of 13 and the beginning of 14, Jesus makes it out of the wilderness. He wins. He's not defeated. Which tells me lots of things. It tells me first, we cannot get out of the wilderness on our own. Someone must go there and bring us out. And this passage says Jesus is the only one. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the greater one who is going to defeat the greatest enemies and then in his victory is going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit, enter them into a relationship with God like never before, and only Jesus can do that. And the rest of Mark is going to show us how he did that. This is the preview. It's to suck us in. I hope you come back. But a couple of thoughts before we go, just on today. 
One thing I just want us to realize, just from these short verses, is that following Jesus is more than a New Year's resolution. It's not a, I'll try Jesus this year. I'm going to do a keto diet and Jesus. That seems good. Both good. That's not what this story is teaching us. It's teaching us that, that when we really want to engage with the living God, it is a total overhaul. We're not fixing a dent on the hood. We're opening the hood, and we're doing an engine overhaul at the deepest places of our very being because that is where our problems lie. And so it's a gigantic start over. This is why in John chapter 3, Jesus looks at a very religious, upstanding man, and he says to him, you must be born again. You who think you have life and religion figured out, you must be totally washed, totally cleansed, and totally rebirthed into a relationship with God. This is why God has continued to give the Christian church the symbol of baptism, that when we trust in Christ and we choose to follow him, we go all in with Jesus in the baptismal waters and saying, I need a rebirth, I need a change, I'm starting all over. And in some of the earliest days, the Christian church did baptism naked. We are not going to get back to that ritual. <laughs> but it symbolized something. It symbolized, I come into the water with nothing. And I come out only with Jesus. So I invite you, if you've never gone out into the wilderness, admitted to God that you're in a place of judgment and that you need a total overhaul, it starts today. It must go. It must go. It's our only hope. He's the son. He's the one who defeats the wilderness. He's the one who can get us out of the wilderness. There is no one like him. But I want to say a word to those who have been walking with Jesus for a while. I don't want us to miss what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, or what John said about the Holy Spirit. John had a massively successful ministry. Don't forget that. And he says, I'm nothing. I'm not as good as a, I'm not as, I'm a, a servants. We're not, you couldn't command your servant to mess with your sandals. Right? And he's saying, I'm not even worthy to, to touch sandals. I'm not, I can't do anything. This Jesus is so great. And then he says, why is he so great? Because he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. A book years ago, I think was right, that the Holy Spirit has become the forgotten God in Christianity. We forget that we believe in a God who is three, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist knew something. Repentance isn't enough. Feeling guilty about your sin is not enough. Wanting to start over is not enough. You need the Spirit of God to come on you and change you inside and out. We don't want an external religion. We want a religion where the Holy Spirit has mighty power. And so Christian and non-Christian, Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen, he says, you know, the Father loves to good give, give good gifts. Even like wicked parents, evil parents, we like to give good gifts to our children. Jesus says, God loves to give good gifts to you. And he says, ask the Lord to give you the Holy Spirit. I think that's a worthy practice when you wake up this week every morning. God, send your Holy Spirit. It's not that he evaporated in the night, 
but to be reminded that God, if you're a Christian, you have been filled with the Spirit, but you need to give the Spirit access and full reign to your mind and your heart, your life and your fingertips. That's why Jesus came. John was successful, but not successful enough. We needed Jesus to come and to live and to die, separated from God in the darkest wilderness of all, on the cross, where our sins were, and he dies for our sins in the wilderness, outside the city. And they bury him. And three days later, he rises. He defeated death, the wilderness, the wasteland. And he comes back and he says, all who trust in me will not die. And you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's good news. I'm going to pray and let's take the supper. Father, thank you for the good news that the greater one has come out into the wilderness where we are. He faced the greatest enemies. And the way he faced them was to die for us. And yet he did not stay dead and rose from the dead. And those who trusted him now share in his life. And we get a taste, a foretaste of that eternal life with the filling of the Spirit now. It is a down payment of future glory, but we have him now. Let us not forget that, so fill us with your spirit. And then, Lord, prepare us, because when we get filled with the spirit, it says you send your sons and daughters back out into the wilderness to face the enemies. And we know we can't face them alone, but with the spirit of God, we know that the one who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.